I got to think in there as we were singing and um, and there were all these people that came to the altar that if this is your first time here, that might have looked weird. If it's your first time here, it might have looked weird. They all got up right about the same time. And I, I just want to say what, what's happening, what, what that is, um, these, these altars, some may argue with me or not agree with what I'm going to say, but these altars, there's truly nothing special about them other than they are a place where we come and we pray together and we cast our cares before the Lord. They're, they're, there's no power in them. And the power is in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the power, the power is when we come together and we pray with and for one another. And so that's why these are significant. I mean, these have been around for many, many, many years. They are all scratched up. Uh, they are well-worn. They're not the prettiest piece of furniture in here, but there's something very sacred about them because of what happens in that space. And so we, you know, in our services, we always regularly invite and open these altars. This is a place that anyone is welcome to come at any point. But sometimes you'll see what happened this morning where people will come and they will be praying together and for one another. Um, and that's, that's what that is. The altar is a very big part of our tradition um, here in the Church of the Nazarene and in many other churches as well. This morning, <clears throat> uh, this series that I'm in is only two parts, <laughs> last week and today. Um, we're going to be moving into our, our Advent season here very quickly. Hard to believe, I know. This morning, though, I want to take, take one more look together at some things that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to open, with, open them with me to Matthew the fifth chapter. <clears throat> We're asking ourselves, we've been asking ourselves this question, what if Jesus was serious? The teaching uh, from Jesus that we're going to look at this morning, uh, I think if we were to take this particular teaching seriously, it would be one of the most alarming things that Jesus says. Uh, because of what he calls us, uh, what he calls us to do, by our own, by our, by our own standards, it, it's crazy. Okay, what what Jesus asks for, by our standards, it's crazy. Look with me in Matthew chapter five, starting with verse twenty-seven. Jesus is teaching here, Sermon on the Mount. There's a crowd gathered around, and he says this. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, how many have a good eye? Anybody have a good eye? Okay. Jesus is talking about that one. Even your good eye causes you to lust, gouge it out, and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, 
It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. There, there's a message for us here this morning about sexual sin, and that's not um, the focus of what we're going to look at today. See, Jesus is talking uh, here to a crowd that has gathered on this hillside to listen to a, a Jewish rabbi teach. Uh, that, that, that's what Jesus was to many of them. He was a rabbi, and, and they are, for the most part, probably Jews themselves. They, all the people that have been listening to Him, they were Jews them, themselves, and, and the teaching that Jesus is referring to, it comes straight from the law of Moses. So this is not news to them, this idea that they are not to commit adultery. But just as Jesus does just a few verses before, in the same message with the issue of, of murder, and then later on he addresses the issue of divorce with a similar tone, Jesus takes their basic understanding, what they have heard for hundreds and hundreds of years, and he kind of turns it up just a notch. Perhaps it would help us if we could better understand the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing here. If we go all the way back to when God first spoke with Abraham, and He told him that He would bless him. This should be familiar. We just talked about this stuff in our Blessed series. But when God went all the way back to Abraham, and He told him that He would bless him, and that all people would be blessed through him, what we're seeing there is we're seeing the birth of a group of people. And those people were the children of Israel. And they were God's chosen ones. They were raised up. They were protected by God. They were led by God uh, through, through, through hundreds and hundreds of years of, of history because God's intent was to bring about the restoration of His creation through them. I, I hope you hear me this morning because this is so important. God's goal, God's intent, God's purpose for making His covenant with Abraham to bless him in order that Abraham could be a blessing and his descendants could be a blessing and all people would be blessed through him was that God was on a track for restoring what had been broken. And this is what God's plan of, of blessing is all about. And all throughout Israel's history, there's, there's this up and down and there's this, this back and forth kind of relationship that they have with God because, because sometimes they get it, but honestly, much of the time they don't. <laughs> they, they continually mess it up. They continually make mistakes and they fail time and time again. They disregard God's commands that they were intended to keep. And the reason God had those commands for them, it was to keep them separated from the world for the purpose of living out the kingdom that He had created. And then the promised Messiah finally comes, Jesus. And He is born as a fulfillment of prophecy, and He introduces a new covenant and He brings to the table a new kind of arrangement for the people of God, and it's one that cuts much deeper than the guardrails of these commandments that God had given His people years ago. Jesus' new covenant 
was about an inward transformation. It was about a heart transformation. And this is why Jesus says to the crowd that day on the side of the hill, now you, you may have heard that you should not commit adultery, and this is true. But Jesus says, I, I am telling you this, even thinking about it, even thinking about it, or even looking at someone with a lustful intent in your heart, Jesus says, that is too much. You'd be better off just gouging out your eyes <laughs> or cutting off your hands. So we have to ask ourselves, did Jesus really intend for people to gouge out their eyes and cut off their hands? Well, whether Jesus was serious or sarcastic, there's still a very important truth for us here in Jesus' words. I know it's hard for us to even consider the idea that Jesus might have been being sarcastic, and I'm not even suggesting that, but I also don't think it's outside the scope of who Jesus was. We like to think of Jesus, Jesus movie Jesus. You know which one I'm talking about? Everybody know Jesus movie Jesus? He's white, first problem, super attractive man, also a problem. Spoken King James, not even historically accurate. We like to think of that Jesus, but but I, I kind of like I like, I like this Jesus right here. Because that's the, that's a Jesus from the Chosen, in case you didn't know. But I mean, he's not ugly, but I mean, he's just a regular guy. That's actually scriptural. We like to think of Jesus as, as being like almost like he levitates on, like he's got a hoverboard under him, and he just moves around. I can't even do it, you know? But Jesus is a regular guy, so could Jesus have been sarcastic? I think he probably could have. You spend that much time with 12 guys, someone's bound to say something sarcastic. But I don't think that's what he was doing here. What we actually see here is that Jesus was using something called hyperbole. Hyperbole is just the use of exaggeration to make a point. There are a few biblical scholars that would say that, that what Jesus is doing is, is, is nothing less than simply using hyperbole. Now, where the disagreement often comes in is just exactly what we are to do how we are to understand this teaching from Jesus. Before we get there, I want to just focus on this. There's an important truth here, and it's this. Sin destroys. That's the truth. Sin destroys. It doesn't matter what kind of sin. Sin destroys. There is no degree of sin. Sin destroys. And in our text, Jesus says that even if your hand caused you to sin, you should cut it off. That could be any number of things. The point that Jesus is making is that sin is serious and that we should take sin seriously. So the writer of Hebrews 
kind of helps us to understand this a little bit. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. He said, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting Him, He endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now He is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility He endured from sinful people, and then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. Here's what this writer of Hebrews is saying for us. Three things. Number one, sin will hinder you. You see, the weight of sin, it will slow you down from running the race that God has set you on, okay? It's like a weight. It's like extra baggage. And so we have to be doing everything we can to shed that. We've got to do everything we can to get rid of that, to lose the things that trip us up. He's also saying this, you've got to fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one through whom our faith is both initiated and perfected. Some translations say He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He took upon Himself our sin, past, present, and future, so that we would not have to carry it on our own. Man, that's... <sighs> That's got to be good news, if you believe it. He also says this, your struggle doesn't compare. Your struggle does not even compare to what Jesus has already done for you. You know, sometimes we, man, we love self-pity. Don't you love self-pity? Don't raise your hand. Everybody's going to look at you. Man, we love self-pity. I, I just... Oh, that's such a rough week. And you, whatever you're dealing with doesn't even compare. I acknowledge we have struggles, we have battles, but what we deal with does not compare to what Christ has done for us. So these things are clear, but where the debate sometimes comes up is here. And even with Jesus using this hyperbole, exaggerating, he, what, what is... Jesus saying should be done. Now, some would say that what Jesus is calling for is, is, is this extreme self-discipline. Oswald Chambers says it like this. He said that Jesus is suggesting that there must be a, a cutting off of a great many things for the sake of one's spiritual life. And I, and I would say that's true. Because when we decide to follow Jesus, just like the song says, there can be no turning back. Even though the world may be behind you, you still must follow Jesus. And even Jesus said that in order to follow Him faithfully, we must be willing to leave those that we love the most. Because following Jesus is about sacrifice. Just last week, I had a conversation with someone about the balance that must be struck between... <clears throat> you know, our spiritual discipline and the work of Jesus on our behalf. And I would simply, I would point to what Hebrews had to say to us today and also to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. We, we, we have to first recognize that what, we have to recognize what Jesus has done for us. 
He took on our sins. He took them to the cross as someone who was fully man and fully God, and He defeated those sins on our behalf. But secondly, Jesus is also very clear. You have to run from sin. Guys, you have to run from sin. Even though your sin has been forgiven, you have to run from it. Why? Because the writer of Hebrews says that stuff will entangle you. It will slow you down. It will keep you from being who you're supposed to be, where you're supposed to be. And if sin ultimately has its way, it will destroy you. It will kill you. And then when that happens, the sacrifice of Jesus is without effect for you. Now, some would also say that what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5, it's just simply sarcasm. He's just using hyperbole. It's not meant to be taken seriously at all. Instead, this call to pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands is just Jesus' way of saying, listen, if you, if, you, if you take this stuff to the extreme like some religious folks are doing, then this is what it's going to look like, and it's just ridiculous. Some people think that would say that that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, another author and theologian, Dallas Willard, said this. This might be a little bit harder to read, and I apologize. He said this, In the Pharisees' view, the law could be satisfied and thus goodness attained if you avoided sinning. So the Pharisees believed that you could satisfy the law just by avoiding sinning. He goes on, you could avoid sinning if you simply eliminated the bodily parts that make sinful actions possible. I mean, that makes sense, right? But listen, then you would roll into heaven a mutilated stump. But so far from suggesting that any advantage could actually be gained this way, Jesus' teaching in this passage is actually exactly the opposite. The mutilated stump could still have a wicked heart. Eliminating body parts will not change that. You see, the the crux of what Jesus is really saying here is this. The transformed heart is, is absolutely necessary. And it's evidenced by new behaviors. And these new behaviors include what Oswald Chambers is talking about when he says that, that things must be cut out of one's life in order to be true and obedient to God. I realize I'm not as exciting as I might normally be because I'm a little under the weather, so stick with me. I don't have it in me to raise my voice too much. These new behaviors include all the things that the law instructed, but they are not just an outward action designed to keep ourselves from sinning. They are an inward desire that impacts what is and what is not happening on the outside. When it comes to sin, it's not always big, huge, apparent sins that trip us up, guys. Perhaps you remember last week, we looked at what the Apostle Paul 
had to say about this. He, he wrote about what the sinful nature looks like, and he listed things like sexual immorality and impurity and lustful pleasures and idolatry and sorcery and hostility and quarreling and jealousy and outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and so on. And he says, in no uncertain terms, in no uncertain terms, Paul says, this kind of stuff will keep you from being a part of God's kingdom. He is very clear on that. Now, you may look at this list, you may think, hey, you know what? I'm good. I'm good. But then I would encourage you to go back to Galatians chapter 5 and actually read it again, just double check. Is there anything on that list? Is there just one thing on that list? Because Paul did not grade these. He didn't list them like, okay, so these are the things, and the ones at the beginning of the list, they're the worst. And the further you go down, like, I mean, you can do that a little bit. No, Paul just says all this stuff has no place. Any one of these things, how big or how small we may think it is, could cause a huge, huge problem. <clears throat> I woke up yesterday morning, <clears throat> and I went downstairs to start the day, and it was starting to, you know, it got colder, and uh, so I thought I'd kick up the thermostat a couple of degrees, warm the house up a little bit, and the heat didn't come on. <clears throat> so I went downstairs and check and make sure that everything was as it should be, and since I am HVAC certified, uh, <laughs> I could see that obviously everything was functioning as it should. A year, about a year ago, Eric Kersey had actually come out to my house, and the pressure switch on our, on our furnace had stopped working, and he, he fixed it, he jerry-rigged it, and he told me he jerry-rigged it, and he said, now get a new one of these and put a new one on. And so the new one came, and uh, I never put it on because it was working. So why would I, you know, it ain't broke. I'm not going to fix it. So yesterday morning when it wasn't working, I, I remembered, ah, pressure switch. So I grabbed that pressure switch, and I replaced it and flipped the switch, and the, and the fan kicked on, and that was it. And I thought, oh. So then I went through the whole, do I call, do I call the HVAC because it's Saturday, Right? But it was cold. And I thought, it's just going to get colder today, and it's going to be cold tomorrow. And so I, I, I figured I'd better go ahead and call someone. So I called, and they called me back, and I told him what was going on. He tried to help me with a couple things. I said, listen, I said, this is outside of my scope. So they came out to the house, and I told him how I had fixed it. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, he looked at everything, and he goes, I, he goes, he goes I'm suspicious that it might be your heat exchanger. And if you've ever dealt with a heat exchanger, you know, like, in some cases, you might as well get a new furnace. And I was like, oh, Lord, I don't need this. And I've, I've really taken a liking to praying. Um, and so, like, I remember I was, walking away from, I was walking away from him, and I was in the basement, I was headed upstairs, and I was like, oh, Lord, please, I don't need this right now. I, I need another solution. And uh, he said, hey, I'm running out of my truck. i to grab a tool so I can get into this. And he went out, and he took longer than I expected, and he came inside. And uh, he, I came out of my office, and he pulls out his phone. He goes, hey, take a look at this. I'm like, why are we not fixing the furnace right now? What? <laughs> and he pulls up this picture. And he said, this was in your vent pipe outside. It's hard to tell perspective, but 
it was enough to fill a vent pipe. And he said, I just thought when I was out there, maybe I should check this pipe because sometimes, you know, things will get in there. And he said, now, I'm going to go back inside now. Let's, let's see what happens. And so he went back inside and he flipped a switch. Fan came on, burner came on. Sometimes it is the littlest things The littlest things that keep us from doing what we are intended to do. The littlest thing that may not seem like that big a deal to you in your life. The littlest sin that you're allowing to lurk in your spirit. The little thing that you're allowing to live in one corner or another of your life may be just the thing that's prohibiting you from doing what you are supposed to be doing. What God has created you to do. I don't even know that was there, but you know. You know. You know what you've allowed to stay in your life, whether it's bitterness or anger or a struggle with lust. Maybe it's division. Maybe you have no self-control. Whatever it is, you've allowed that to fester in your spirit. And I'm telling you this morning, that is prohibiting you from doing and being what God intends for you to do and be. That's just truth. And everything may look all right on the outside because we are really good at that. All other systems maybe go but when there's something that lingers in our spirit, some sin that's allowed to hang around and not be dealt with, it will shut the whole system down. And it will not function. But when sin is dealt with, <clears throat> when we finally come to the place where we are fully surrendered, and we are fully committed to who God is for us, and what God is for us. And when we're able to look at the cross of Christ as not just a religious symbol or a wall hanging, but see that it was on the cross that Jesus took all of our sin, your past, your present, and your future, to the grave, and He defeated it. When we are finally able to open up our lives to the work and the moving of the Holy Spirit every single day, then what is happening on the outside of our lives will no longer be a result of what we have done, but a result of what He has done for us. See, holiness is not just an internal or an external reality only. It actually transforms both. The psalmist says it like this. It says, and I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. Let me just stop there. Wouldn't that be a beautiful place to be? And I hope that some of you are there. But to be able to say like the psalmist says, and I, I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. God says, this is the standard that I have set for you. This is where I desire for you to be. And the psalmist says, man, when I get there, I, I, I will not be ashamed. He goes on, as I, as I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you. 
by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please. I love how the psalmist kind of interjects here. That's what's happening here. He's like, please, God, don't give up on me. I'm working on this. He says, how can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. This also works for old persons. I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands, God. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I've recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. Was Jesus serious? Yes. He was serious. But he was serious in this. He wants all of you. And in that, there can be no part of the old you. There's only room for him. You're thinking, well, that is really demanding, Pastor, and I don't know if I like that. Or maybe you're thinking, I've tried that, but I just keep coming back to my old ways, and I can't let them go. I'd I'd first say, yeah, it, it, it is demanding. You know, Jesus said the most important command was this. You have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. That's really demanding. And he's very clear, like, they asked him, what's, what's most important? He said, well, here it is. You have to love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. And he actually combines that with the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says this. He says, every law, don't miss this, every law and every demand of the prophets are based on those two commands. That's why Jesus says, hey, this is the most important, and everything kind of spiderwebs out from that. If you can do those two things and you can do them well, every other law, every other command, every other demand, every expectation that God has for you, listen to me, is rooted in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every single one of them. Is it demanding? Yep, it is. In fact, everything that Paul talked about in Galatians 5 is tied to those two. If we, if we would just fully love God and love our neighbor with all that we are, it will demand a change in us. And it is a lot. It's demanding. But, but every challenge you could possibly face in your life, guys, every challenge you could possibly face in your life when it comes to the battle with sin... I promise you it will be answered through loving God with all of your heart and soul and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. Every single one. Every battle you face, every sin you commit, every single one of them, if you will just commit to loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and loving your neighbor, every single one of those will be taken care of. Every battle could be won. Now let me also say this. You may have tried and failed. I could tell you my stories. Many of you have your own stories. You may have tried and failed. You may be sitting here this morning, you're like, man, I tried and I have failed. 
I failed coming here this morning. I failed since I got here today. I failed 20 times last week. I failed so much, I don't even know what it feels like to succeed anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You, I, I, I just I can't do this. I've tried, and I can't do it. You may feel this morning like you are a lost cause. Hear me this morning when I say this. There are no lost causes in God's economy. None. None. There's no lost causes. You are never, ever, ever beyond the reach of God's grace. You're never outside the bounds of His forgiveness. You are never too far gone from what God has for you. And what God has for you is new life. Rebirth. A fresh start. Here's the thing. When we're asking ourselves the question, what if Jesus was serious? The answer is always going to be yes. It's always going to be yes. He was serious when he said that our righteousness must exceed those of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he was serious when he said that in order to get sin out of our lives, we'd have to take drastic measures. He was serious when he went to the cross. (laughs) He was serious because he knew that it was only through that act that our sins could be forgiven. He was serious because he knew that the reason the Father sent him was so that he could be the sacrifice to end all other sacrifices. He was serious because his love for us was so intense, so powerful, so so all-encompassing that there was nothing he would not do to give us this gift of forgiveness and salvation. I asked you last week, are you ready to be serious? And I pose that same question to you today. Are you ready to be serious about responding to what Jesus has done for you? Are you ready to be serious? about responding to what Jesus has done for you. Because it does require a response. It requires a response on, on your part. And it requires a response that then triggers a transformation of your heart. transformation of your desires and of your will, and and that becomes a part of all of who we are. See, here's um, here's my concern.
my concern is that my concern is that we have a lot of people in the church who are just kind of doing this thing. We have a lot of people in the church that like this transformation that we're talking about. Like may, maybe at one particular time in their lives they scratched the surface of that when they were particularly excited about the decision they had made. But ultimately the transformation never really took place. Ultimately they were never really filled with the Holy Spirit which, by the way, is an expectation that God has for us. Like, that's, that's part of this process, too. Because when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what empowers us when we look at what Paul's talking about in Galatians 5. That's what gives us the power and the strength through the infilling of the Holy Spirit to say, these things are not going to be a part of my life at all. Not from time to time, at all, to reject those things fully through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, but then on the flip side of the thing, to produce a new fruit. And here's why I say what I said there at the beginning. We don't see that in the church. We, we, don't, see, we don't see what Paul, Paul is talking about here in Galatians He says in Galatians 5, speaking of uh, the fruit of the Spirit, my goodness, why is Galatians so hard to find? Lord, help me. The enemy doesn't like it when you... Okay. Paul says this, he says, the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants, the Spirit of God. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. Remember that? Constantly fighting each other. So here, here are some of the desires of the sinful nature. I would, I would, I would submit to you as your pastor who not as a, I don't say this as a woe is me, I say this, this is the burden that I carry for the church, for this church. If you follow the desires of your sinful nature, this is what you will see. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Now, we, we don't get to uh, claim ownership on all these things because we're not alone, but uh, all those things are present in the church. <coughs> some of those things are present in some of your lives. Paul says, let me tell you again, as I've said before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
You know, I, what, I, what I want for us, church, is I want for each and every single one of you to be a part of God's kingdom. Right now, right here. To be a part of what God's doing right here, right in this place and in this community. But I'm telling you guys, if you don't get to a place where you fully and completely and entirely surrender your life to him, it's not going to happen. Paul goes on and he says that when we do surrender our lives, we begin to produce a new kind of fruit. It's much more appealing. And this fruit is not a plural fruit. It is a singular fruit. That's important for us because Paul is saying all of these things are reflected in the life of someone who is following Christ with all of their heart, soul, mind, strength. This is what it is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those things are a product of the Holy Spirit at work in you. That sounds great, Pastor. I'm feeling really defeated right now. Like I, 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 I know that some of those things are part of my life and, and I'm going to leave here just feeling like you just, beat, you just beat me up. Listen to what Jesus says. He said, I want you to know how much God loves you. He says, God loves you that he sent his only son. That's me. So that everyone who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Right? God sent his son into the world not to judge, but to save the world. There's no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And that judgment's based on this, that God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light. For their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light, and they refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right, they come to the light so that others can see it and see that they are doing what God wants. God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And that gift is made available to each and every one of us And it's a gift that does not expire. It does not fade. You may have received that gift in the past and then shoved it back in the closet. And God is still extending that gift of forgiveness to you through grace that he goes before us with every single day of our lives. And this gift of the Holy Spirit, this radical transformational change is something that that can come to you if you are willing to receive it and you will cry out to God for him to give it to you. I fully believe that because I've been in that place. I was so hungry. I was so desperate for something different because my life was a little more reflective of what Paul said earlier in Galatians 5 than it was of what he was saying later in Galatians 5. I was so 
desperate for something different that I finally reached a point of complete brokenness. And I said, God, now I'm ready. That, by the way, was many, many years of walking as a Christian. So I invite you today to respond to what God's done for you. Through his son, Jesus Christ. Even if you feel like you've fallen over and over again, I want you to know that this promise is for you today too. Even if you have rejected this with your whole heart for all of your life, I want you to know that this promise is for you too. Even if you think that this is very demanding, and it is, I want you to know that this promise is for you too. Let Jesus do what Jesus came to do. We're going to sing in a moment. These altars that I talked about earlier, they're going to be open again. For you to lay that all down with Jesus. There's nothing that you have done There's nothing that you have done that is too much. There is no battle that you are facing that is too great. And there is nothing that can separate you from His love. And I would also say, do not believe the, uh, the lie that the enemy might be telling you right now. And it's this. You're probably the only one so don't embarrass yourself because I promise you, you are not. Would you respond as we sing today?